Jodcast, five years away from hoverboards, with Jen Gupta and Stuart Lowe. The Jodcast, April 2010 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to The Jodcast. Apologies for the late release of this show. We've been in Glasgow at the National Astronomy Meeting and didn't have time to record the show before we left. But we thought we'd bring you a summary and catch-up from our last edition of the Jodcast. Hopefully you've all noticed by now that it was the April Fool's edition of the Jodcast. We didn't actually have an episode in spring 1990. It would have been a bit confusing given that we decided that our one get-out clause was that we were the same age as that we are now. Otherwise I'd have been three. And hopefully everyone picked up on it fairly quickly that we were not in 2010. I think my awesome rendition of the music would have hopefully given it away. It was rather piercing in its synthiness. We we should explain why we, we did this special April Fool's edition. Every year we, we have an April Fool. Usually they're before the music and after the music. And last year we did um, a takeover by Astronomy Cast, so Pamela Gay and Fraser Kane of Astronomy Cast. And we we were trying to think of a way to outdo it, and we decided we'd make the entire show an April Fool. This is one of Stuart's crazy ideas, of course. Yeah, I have these thing, crazy ideas at three in the morning, it's terrible. <laughs> so we decided 20 years was a suitable amount of time. It was within our lifetimes, and it was just before the launch of the Hubble Space Telescope. So it gave us a good excuse to go back and see what has happened with Hubble over the past 20 years. And it was a lot of fun recording it. We got Nick back. We all sat around a table with a tape recorder. But unfortunately, the tape we were using was 20 years old and the sound quality was appalling and we didn't think that we could put you guys through that. It was it was really, really bad. And thankfully, we'd had the foresight to record the whole show on the normal Jodcast recorders as well. So we then added tape sound effects back onto it <laughs> from the cassette tape itself. We did also video these efforts, so I'm not quite sure if... If that would ever make it onto the internet. The bit, I don't know if anyone's (laughs) noticed that there are some outtakes on the spring 1991. For some reason... Some audio outtakes. Audio outtakes. For some reason, Dave found the postcode of Jodrell Bank extremely funny. And Nick, Neil and I had to go and sit at the back of the room to stop him from having a giggling fit every time he said it. So anyway, we had we had lots of fun imagining how we would have done podcasts in 1990 and we decided it was possible. It was probably a lot more work if we'd done it in those days because we would have had to make all those cassette tapes. And that's why we decided it was a spring issue rather than April. We think we only had four episodes back in 1990. And you if know. you've looked at the artwork, if you were wondering why Hubble was kind of cut off, that's because Stuart did actually design it to be the, the dimensions of a cassette tape. And then we had to chop it for the the image on the website. <laughs> we thought of everything. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we did try to keep it as authentic as possible to the time with as correct information as we could we could remember or find. And we hope, well, well I was going to say we hope that there was nothing wrong, but then Stella hasn't written in to tell us that anything there was wrong. There was a mistake. We did, we called Martin Rees Sir Martin Rees when I'm, I'm pretty sure he was only knighted in 1992 or 1993, so there was a mistake that Stella didn't pick up on. However, that was actually referencing a paper that was written in 1989. Yeah, I'm not quite sure how that happened. Which had referred to him as, as Sir Martin So if Reese. Martin Rees is listening and would like to clarify when he was knighted, please get in touch. I'm sure he doesn't listen to the Jodcast. <laughs> anyway, before we move on to bringing you up to date and back into the 2010 we would like to tell you about our survey. It's been a while since we've done a survey here at the Jodcast. I think 2007 was the last time. So we really need to do a survey of listeners again to find out a general idea of who you are or how you're listening and things like that. 
mostly so that we can report back to the Science and Technology Facilities Council, who've been very nice in giving us another grant since last year. Yeah, I mean, it, this gives you a chance to give us some feedback. If you don't normally send us an email or go on the forum, this is the one time that we would really appreciate you giving any feedback that is possible. And to encourage you, we have a prize. Ooh. <laughs> don't sound so excited, Jen. <laughs> So while we were at the National Astronomy Meeting, which we'll have interviews from that in the next edition of the Jodcast, while we were there, we managed to get a prize from Canopus Press. They very nicely gave us a book called Dark Side of the Universe by Ian Nicholson. That book is to be given away to a lucky person who's drawn from a hat. So if you fill in the survey at the end, you'll have a chance to enter your email address. If you don't want to enter your email address, then you won't be able to win the book. And that's fine. If you do want to have a chance to win the book, put your email address on the form. And if you do want to be entered into the draw, you have to do that before the 13th of May because we'll be announcing the winner on the May Extra show. So there you are, your chance to win an exciting book. Yeah, I'm quite annoyed. It's, it's in, I've, got, I've got the book at the moment. I'd quite like to keep it. <laughs> well, you're not allowed. I know. Anyway, as Stuart said, we're, this episode is a catch-up episode of what happened in the last 20 years. We've got interviews with all of our interviewees from the Spring 1990 show. So first up is Mike Disney to tell us about what's happened with the Hubble Space Telescope in the last 20 years. Okay, we're back here with Mike Disney from Cardiff University in Wales. Hi Mike, welcome back to the Jodcast. Thank you. Now, thank you very much, first of all, for taking part in our April Fool's edition of the Jodcast set in 1990. We thought we'd catch back up 20 years of Hubble history and find out what's happened since the launch of Hubble. In our conversation, we talked about the mirror for a start, the perfect mirror that was built for Hubble. Now, at the point just before launch, we didn't know that there was any kind of problem with the mirror, and that was only discovered just afterwards. Can you just tell us a little bit about that first? Well, I can tell you what happened to me. I I was here in Cardiff, just about to go out, when uh, a friend of mine rang up and said, the images look ridiculous in the telescope, and there's a lot of us here think it, it may be spherical aberration. And I can remember uh, banging my head on the mirror uh, because it seemed that nothing worse could possibly have happened. And, of course, that's what did happen. And then the next uh, two years was a a fascinating but ultimately futile attempt to try and find some way of unscrambling those images. And uh, hundreds and hundreds of clever people from all walks of science all had strong opinions. Some said it could easily be done using a big enough computer. Others said that's nonsense. And in the end, it, uh, the answer turned out to be basically it couldn't be done. And uh, so, as you all know, uh, we tried to fit spectacles, basically, to the telescope and, and succeeded in doing that. And three years later, it worked. That was an amazing piece of engineering to diagnose the problem from the ground and then to build a solution and to send it up into space with astronauts who who installed the new lenses on, on Hubble. Yes, it was. I think the, the wisest decision taken about Hubble from beginning to end was that it should be repairable, updatable, and that's the great thing about the space shuttle. This is the one mission for which it's designed to evolve. And as we know now, it's been visited, I can never remember, it's four or five times, but each time we've updated its instrumentation. And it's a very much more powerful instrument now than it was when we launched it. And we talked about some of the science that Hubble might do. Can you tell us about some of the areas that you've been interested in particularly over the last 20 years? 
Well, I did mention quasars, and uh, so I was lucky enough to, to lead one of the teams looking at quasars with a repaired telescope. And sure enough, uh, when we looked, you could see that they were interacting galaxies, one of which at least had a massive black hole at its core. The second thing uh, that others have done is to demonstrate that virtually all galaxies, all massive galaxies, have massive black holes in their cores. Uh, and that's exciting, very exciting, and uh, uh, we don't really understand that. We don't understand whether the black hole came first or the galaxy. But I think the most shocking thing in a way, or one of the shocking things is, when we were designing Hubble's cameras way back in the 70s and 80s, we were told by cosmologists we wouldn't be doing any cosmology because all the galaxies you could see, the very distant ones, would be too faint to be seen with a Hubble. So you can imagine the surprise and shock we had when, whenever we took a deep frame, whenever we take one now, it's all covered plastered with lots of faint galaxies. And I have to say, the cosmologists have been completely shameless about it. They, <laughs> they've never, they've never apologised. But one feels there's something, um, there's something weird going on there. At least I do. And uh, of course, uh, uh, Hubble played a big role in um, discovering that the universe is accelerating, or dark energy, or whatever you like to call it. That surely is a shock. And that's the kind of size of shock we'd all hoped for and predicted. And I don't think anybody has any idea what's going on. So uh, looking back on it now, although I didn't do the things particularly I wanted to do, and that probably applies to everybody, we've done different things. And Hubble's been immensely productive in every aspect. And it's interesting now that most of the papers that are written with the Hubble are actually use the archive, which means there's far more exciting data sitting on computers, which anybody can play with, than you can get from carrying out your own observing program with Hubble. So it's a real mine of exciting nuggets that are still there to be found. And we briefly mentioned extrasolar planets. Of course, in 1990, we didn't know of any. Um, the first one was 1992, which was around a pulsar, and then 1995 was the first around a, a sun-like star. Okay. But Hubble has recently um, identified, going back in the archives, as you mentioned, some extrasolar planets as well, hasn't it? Yes, it hasn't been the main driver in the extrasolar planet game. That's been done by ground-based telescopes using uh, radial velocity meters. But yes, it, it's certainly been used to characterize some of the exoplanets that have been found. And maybe that uh, activity will increase with a new camera on board. Can you just tell us about the new camera? Cameras uh, wear out in space. Cosmic rays do them no good. So it was recognized about uh, t 10 years ago that uh, we ought to put uh, a new camera for about 2005. And at the same time, detectors are improving enormously. We can build far better detectors now than we could back when Hubble was launched. So a team was set up, uh, an American-European team was set up to build what was called Wide Field Camera 3, and I've been lucky enough to be involved in that. And we just finally, with all the delays to shuttle and everything else, we just launched it last year. And I'm pleased to say it's an absolutely staggering uh, instrument. It's got 90% quantum efficiency across a huge range, all the way from the ultraviolet to the infrared, etc., etc., etc. 
And the net result is that the whole telescope is basically a new, a new telescope. It's a new space telescope. And within the first few uh, days, uh, we were finding uh, galaxies at redshifts of seven or eight. You know, it's so that's very far back in the universe. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if somebody told me you could do that, when we started out, I'd, I'd have just laughed. I thought that, that would have been a complete a fairy story. And is there anything in particular that's your favourite thing that you've you've been involved with in Hubble? Well, uh, I think the Quasar program was very interesting because it was uh, sort of direct. You could see people of my generation had been puzzling over quasars for, for 30 years. They were the thing, you know, to see that they were indeed, as some people had speculated, in the middle of galaxies, and these galaxies were quarreling with each other and possibly swallowing one another. Just to see it, you know, there it was, that was exciting to me. Well, thank you very much for talking to us and sparing some time to tell us about the Hubble Space Telescope. Mike Disney, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thanks for that, Mike. And a, a lot has happened in 20 years. Obviously, as Mike said, we've we've seen the launch of Hubble and it's done so many amazing things. Perhaps it's, its biggest impact are the amazing images which now adorn desktops all over the world <laughs> as people put them as a desktop wallpaper. But they are beautiful. They are, and the number of front front pages of newspapers that have been turned over to Hubble images is, is great, and that's a, a huge impact during the past 20 years. And if you do like all the Hubble images, there is a Hubble 3D IMAX film that's being shown at the moment. Um, Stu and I tried to go and see this when we were in Glasgow last week. But unfortunately, they put the showing, they had a free preview of it, but they put it on the same night as a conference dinner and Chris Lintot's talk. So we didn't manage to get to it. And that film's in 3D, as things seem to be these days. I think it was filmed during the last servicing mission, wasn't it? Yeah, parts of it are from that. And unfortunately, it's only showing, as as far as we know, in the UK, it's only showing in the Glasgow Science Centre and London Science Museum. But it's also showing in the United States and Canada. So we'll put a link to the website where you can find out details of showings closer to you. I really want to see. I, I'm thinking maybe if we get enough people, we could persuade the Odeon in Manchester to put a showing on. That would be great. I'm not sure if there are enough Jodcast listeners in the <laughs> Manchester area, though. To, I don't think so. To make that happen, but it would be great if it could. It's such a shame. I, I guess all of these avatars and Alice in Wonderland, I don't know what the latest one is. But... And it's one of the problems with the 3D films. There are so few places to yeah. do the 3D, and it's got to be IMAX, IMAX yeah. that it's difficult to take off a very well-selling show and put on something that's considered niche. Obviously, everyone wants to learn how to train a dragon at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) And as we move on, our second interview is an update from Professor Richard Davis from Jodrell Bank. Welcome back to the Jodcast, Richard. Hello there. In the the last episode, which was our April Fool's edition, we we were set in 1990 and we were talking about Merlin and the new 32-metre dish that was coming online in Cambridge. Things have changed in the past 20 years and Merlin's had some more upgrades since then, hasn't it? We're currently upgrading it to uh, operate with optical fibres rather than uh, radio links. The radio links limit the bandwidth that we can transmit something like 10 or 20 megahertz But with optical fibres, we're more or less limitless. We can transmit the whole of the radio spectrum. And uh, we're using 30 gigabits per second. So it's the order of a thousand times the amount of information that we can obtain from each of the telescopes. At no extra cost, just the cost of the optical fibres. The telescopes themselves are broadband devices. They receive all this information. And for all these 
last uh, years that we've been operating, some 20 or so more years, most of the information received by the telescopes has been rejected simply because we couldn't transport it to Jodrell Bank. So it's basically been thrown off to one side and lost forever. Absolutely. So now that will be much improved with the new E-Merlin. Indeed. So the big technological things that have moved forward has been the invention of these very, very wideband optical fibre monomode systems together with uh, this incredible correlator system that is now able to process uh, these sort of data rates that are sort of comparable to the entire internet traffic of the United Kingdom. <laughs> That's a lot of traffic. It most certainly is. And you're saying about the, the correlator. So the correlator's got a special job in this whole process, doesn't it? Yes, the correlator, we've sat down with the Americans building the EVLA because the correlator they need and the one we need are very similar. So we've actually designed it together. And indeed, the software is designed together as well. The actual correlator for both EVLA and eMerlin has been built by the Canadians in Penticton. Um, So what does the correlator actually do? Well, what it does is it multiplies the signals from all the pairs of the telescopes and uh, obtains what we call the correlation coefficient. So it tells you the fraction of the signal which comes in each telescope that is common to the radio source, and that tells us about the structure and the shape of the images of the objects that we're studying. Given we're essentially getting a thousand times more information, it means that with the new Merlin we can do in one day what we could have done with the old Merlin in three years. And so the the astronomical returns uh, for just the price of uh, putting in these fibres, just using these same steel and aluminium telescopes with no upgrades to the telescopes, uh, we we can get this tremendous improvement in the astronomy, uh, which results in a sensitivity of something like 30 times. This is an enormous factor compared to any other sort of scientific instrument you can think of. People talk often about factors of two or three as being big factors. Here we're getting a factor of 30 improvement in the sensitivity. So we don't know what we're going to see. It's very, very exciting indeed. I was just thinking it is very much like the Hubble Space Telescope in that it retrofits its instruments. It's yeah, the same thing, isn't it? Is, it is, yeah. It's... Right, well, hopefully eMerlin will produce lots of exciting results in the coming years. So thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you. Thanks for that, Richard. What I like about all the updates that are happening at the moment, all the new telescopes, everyone seems to be putting an E in front of the name, but the it's E the EVLA in, in America. There's the, there's the E Merlin. There's the E ELT. There's the EVLBI. Uh, but I'm sure the E stands for a different thing each time. I don't think it actually stands for anything. I think it's just <laughs> there to make it sound new and futuristic, up to date, which they all are, of course. So that was radio astronomy from the ground, updated to 2010. And in space, radio and millimetre astronomy has been coming on in leaps and bounds. We heard about the launch of the Cosmic Background Explorer, COBE, in the 1990 edition from Richard Batty. And he's here again to bring us up to date with what's happened to cosmology in the past 20 years. Okay, once again, we're joined by Dr. Richard Batty from the University of Manchester. Thank you for taking part in our April Fool, Richard, and welcome back. Thank you. We were talking about the launch of COBE and the first results from COBE, the Cosmic Background Explorer. It got launched in 1989 and the first results were in 1990. Can you tell us what happened in the subsequent years with COBE? Well, we uh, we were expecting the results of uh, the DMR experiment in 1992 and they duly arrived. And they measured the fluctuations in the cosmic microwave background temperature. And we found that the uh, temperature isotropies, as we call them, are one part in 10 to the 5, so one part in 100,000. 
and these fluctuations were measured by Kobe on, on very, very large scales, about 7 degrees on the sky. So that's about 14 times the diameter of the sun. And uh, this has led to a lot of very interesting constraints on cosmological models. So what were the constraints on the models? So if you remember what I said before, there was these competing ideas between inflation and topological defects for the initial fluctuations of the universe. And there was this idea that we could constrain the matter of the, the matter content of the universe. So just a quick reminder, inflation was this very quick period of expansion in the very beginning of the universe. So inflation is a period of exponential expansion at the beginning of the universe. And uh, this can lead via quantum mechanics to the formation of the seeds of galaxy formation. The idea of topological defects is that something rather dramatic happened in the uh, early universe and these topological defects were formed and they, as if they hung around for long enough they could create fluctuations as they moved through the universe. In fact, the DMR results were not really able to uh, rule in and out those models. But what it did do is it managed to show that some of the models for the dark matter of the universe were, were incorrect. So there was two ideas... Uh, one was called cold dark matter. So, so cold means its kinetic energy is less than its rest mass energy. It's equals mc squared energy. And uh, the, the idea of hot dark matter, dark matter which was made, of, for example, of neutrinos, hot dark matter is where it, it, its kinetic energy is larger than its rest mass energy. Okay, so it's moving extremely quickly. Yes. So a neutrino is something that travels close to the speed of light. And so the cold dark matter of the universe... It was the model that was shown to be correct, or something similar to the cold dark matter model was shown to be correct. So you're saying Kobe managed to, to rule out the hot dark matter? Yeah, so, so, so when you compared the amplitude of fluctuations that were measured by Kobe and those that had already been measured on much smaller scales in, in the distribution of galaxies, one found that the two were incompatible for hot dark matter, whereas the cold dark matter model... Well, the cold dark matter model didn't agree exactly either, and we'll come to that in a minute. But it was definitely much closer than the hot dark matter. It was really catastrophic for the hot dark matter model. So the Kobe results were, were fairly fundamental results. Um, I think a Nobel Prize has been shared between the people who worked on that. Yes. Um, moving forward into the late 1990s, there were some measurements from supernova, I think, weren't there? There were. So... so Cosmological observations moved on. Uh, there were many more uh, CMB measurements. People measured the galaxy distribution of the universe more. But they also started looking at supernovae, a particular kind of supernovae whose luminosity we believe we know. And essentially we can work out from the, the observed luminosity, we can measure how far away they actually are. And this allows us to understand things about the expansion history of the universe. And what we what we found was that the universe seemed to be actually, rather than slowing down, as I uh, had, had predicted, it was actually accelerating. And this is a, a great uh, surprise to everybody. And uh, this led to the uh, construction of a model called, which is now called Lamna CDM. And basically what it has in it, as well as the CDM, it has something... That's the cold dark matter. The cold dark matter. Uh, it has in it uh, a cosmological constant, and this is an energy of the vacuum which drives the expansion of the universe in the in the absence of anything anything else there, and this is what leads to the to the acceleration. 
Lambda was first predicted by Einstein, I think, didn't he? He, he predicted it. Well, he, he, <laughs> he, he didn't actually predict it in the way that we, we observe it, but he, he, he took his famous field equations, the Einstein uh, equations, which are the, the uh, equations that govern general relativity, and he added a constant to that in order to make the universe not expand. Right. Um, but in fact, uh, this was shown to be a, a very bad idea because the concept was unstable to perturbations. But it, it's something that had been hanging around then for quite some time afterwards as an idea and, and had come in and out of fashion as cosmological observations improved. You know, Sometimes people said they needed a lambda to explain their observations, sometimes they said they didn't. But finally we got to this point where they, the people measured the supernovae and they uh, concluded that the only way that they could explain what they saw was via this cosmological constant. And then moving on from supernovae, there have been, there've been balloon-borne experiments, and yeah. then we've moved again into space. But there were uh, some balloon-based and ground-based uh, CMB experiments, and they started to measure the anisotropies of the cosmic microwave background on much smaller scales. And this allowed us actually to rule out the model of topological defects for the formation of the initial seeds of galaxy formation. And... Uh, the, the subsequent observations seem to be very compatible with the the inflationary paradigm uh, for the formation of the initial fluctuations. So the, then there was um, WMAP. Uh, when so that's the Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe. That's right. So that that's a, that was a, an, another satellite uh, by NASA, and this was launched. I think it was at two thousand and one, and it has now been operational for for nearly nine years. And there's been some wonderfully uh, precise and exciting results that have come out of that, and they've measured the anisotropies over a very wide range of scales over the whole sky. And this has allowed us to to become very confident that the, these data are, are uh, compatible with this, this lambda CDM model, and this is now the standard paradigm for how the universe looks. And then moving into 2009, just last year, we had the launch of Planck. Indeed. So Planck was launched, and Planck is an, is a is a an, another satellite mission. Um, this time uh, by ESA and uh, the European Space Agency. It has been gathering data uh, for um, about seven months now, and so it's it's covered the sky once already, and it's going to cover it hopefully another three times, and it has even higher resolution than than WMAP. And higher sensitivity, so uh, it will, in some sense, be the ultimate measurement of the CMB temperature anisotropies of the universe, and hopefully, it will allow us to constrain even further the model. So, a lot has happened in twenty years. Then, for someone who works on these things every day, it sort of seems like things uh, go very slowly. But um, looking looking back at it and thinking it in that way, an enormous amount of things have happened, and it's all been very exciting for everyone involved. And just looking forward from 2010, what what might you expect for cosmological research? <laughs> well, that's a very difficult question. Well, hopefully they'll find something I worked on. Uh, but, um, well, no, I think that's a bit too optimistic. But um, the Planck results will be released in, in 2012, and uh, we, we can expect there to be some very, very tight constraints at the very least on, on, on the models and hopefully we'll discover something that we didn't really expect and, and, and there'll be a new 
era of uh, of excitement and cosmology. Right. Well, thank you very much for talking to us, and the best of luck with your research in cosmology. Thank you. Thanks for that, Richard. And that brings us to the news in a Rather different strangely. order to, to normal here. This is what happens when Megan's not on the show. We we mix things up. <laughs> <laughs> so the first item in the spring 1990 news was the third anniversary of Supernova 1987A. Lots of work was ongoing, even three years after it. And in fact, even now, 23 years on, there's still a lot happening, isn't there? Yeah, um, if you search on the... Smithsonian NASA abstract database. This is a website where you can look for abstracts of papers, of conference proceedings, all of that kind of stuff. There are 18 abstracts that have been put on there in the last year. So that's 2009 April to 2010 April, which for something that happened 23 years ago is quite impressive. And obviously when this supernova was first observed in February 1987, Hubble wasn't around but now the Hubble Space Telescope has taken some amazing photos of this supernova it's, they're brilliant and we'll put a link to some of those pictures on the show notes now another item on the news was the upcoming Northern Sky Atlas a new one that was done in collaboration between ESO the European Southern Observatory and Palomar Observatory in the US the collaboration came about because uh, obviously these images were being taken at the Palomar Observatory and ESO were copying the images and distributing the the plates to observatories around the world. And this has come to be known as the Palomar Sky Survey 2. Since 1990, it has been digitised and is available as part of the Digitised Sky Survey. But we also have the SDSS, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, a completely different thing. It doesn't cover the whole sky, but it goes a lot deeper. Now, SDSS might be something that quite a few of you are familiar with. It's the project that Galaxy Zoo is based around. So SDSS provides these images, optical images, of a portion of the sky. And Galaxy Zoo got members of the public to identify these galaxies, classify them. And it's been a brilliant project. In fact, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey has been one of the most cited projects in astronomy. There are thousands of, of papers that reference the data from the SDSS. And it's probably a, a, a tribute to the the people behind the survey who've put it online in such an easy-to-access way. So it's very easy to go to their website and, and get information and data from that survey. Yeah, it's something that I use in, in my project. I use I was using it daily for about a year, and it's just, it's, it's just so easy, and it's amazing that they've just released it so quickly. And it's amazing to think, how did people survive before we had the SDSS and DSSs? <laughs> you had to go and get these photographic plates. I just... I, I can't I can't comprehend that. <laughs> This was pre-web, of course, in yeah. spring 1990. The web wasn't going to exist for another couple of years, really. And the final item in the news was the upcoming launch of Hubble, which was scheduled for April. And in fact, Hubble launched on April the 20th, 1990, and was released from STSS-31, the shuttle, on April the 24th. I wonder what astronomy would have been like without the Hubble Space Telescope. Well, it's difficult to imagine, isn't it? Yeah. And of course, we've got the James Webb Space Telescope, which is going to replace Hubble, and that's in the process of being developed and launching. I think they keep on putting the launch date back, so I have no idea when it is now. A Although the years. James Webb still doesn't quite overlap entirely in terms of the wavelength or the frequency that it observes with. No. But it's the best thing we'll have. But it's being, it's being touted as Hubble's replacement. So moving on, we get to Ask an Astronomer, where we talk to the very young and new Dr. Tim O'Brien, who has moved institutions since 1990. <laughs> and he answered a couple of questions from listeners. So apologies to Christopher Lintott. <laughs> Did you get his permission to use his name and that? Yes, okay. although he didn't know what his letter was going to be. 
A 10-year-old Chris um, allegedly wrote in to ask about planets and the possibility of detecting planets around other stars. Of course, he mentioned that there were nine planets and we, it gave us a chance to talk about how you might go about detecting planets and since then we've found them. In fact, it wasn't very long after 1990 that the first one was discovered. That was in 1992 and there were some planets going around a pulsar, which is not a very healthy environment for, for life to exist in. And since then, we've found rather a lot. I think we found 452 as of a few days ago. I mean, this is constantly being updated. It's quite incredible it's difficult to watch to keep numbers in your head, go up. The current number, isn't it? But what is interesting is the first published discovery of a planet was actually in 1988. But the people who published this paper, they were very cautious about saying that it was a planet. You know, they said it could be something else. But since then, there have been follow-up observations and it's pretty much, it's a planet as far as we can be sure that anything around another star as a planet. And the second question was attributed to Rapid Eye, who didn't actually write that question at all, but we he volunteered to take part in, in our 1990 edition without knowing why or how. Rapid Eye was, was concerned about the Galileo spacecraft crashing into the Earth. Which, of course, did not happen, as we are still here. We are not suffering from radiation poisoning or anything like that. And it, in fact, carried on very successfully onto Jupiter and did quite a lot of observations on yeah, it was there. I think it, it got there in about 95, I think, and it's it's the only spacecraft that's actually orbited Jupiter. Other ones have gone past it. And at the end of its mission, they did crash the Galileo spacecraft into Jupiter. And again, there were issues regarding the radioactive material on board, whether it would infect, you know, harm any life that would be on Jupiter. Not that there probably is life, but people were concerned about Europa, which is one of the reasons why it was deliberately crashed instead of just letting it float off. And in fact, still today, we don't know whether there's life on Europa, but lots of people think there's a possibility, as we, we think there's a large ocean underneath the icy crust of Europa that could possibly harbour huge European whales or, <laughs> or fish or microbacteria. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of the planets, one of the odds and ends that we had on the last show was Nick talked about the Voyager mission. And at the time of recording the spring 1990 episode, Voyager had been taking a portrait of the solar system. Yeah, and that was instigated by Carl Sagan, as we mentioned on that episode. And it wasn't until a few years later, I think it was 1993, that Carl Sagan referred to the image of the pale blue dot referring to the Earth. I hope everyone appreciated our awful, awful banter about what colour that would be. Um, Which we tried our best to avoid using the terms pale blue dot. I know, I think I got it in the end and I said, wouldn't it be blue? But I was cringing while saying that. But Voyager, it managed to image Neptune, Uranus, Saturn, Jupiter, the Earth and Venus. Uh, Mercury was too close to the sun for it to see. Um, Mars was only a thin crescent of sunlight, so you couldn't see the whole planet. And Pluto was too dim. And of course, again, we can get into the arguments of Pluto being a planet. And amazingly, Voyager, both 1 and 2, are still going today. They're still occasionally being communicated with by the Earth. And I think as of February, Voyager 1 was nearly 17 billion kilometres from the Sun. That's more than 10 billion miles. And at the moment, it's still within what's called the solar bubble. It's still within the solar system. But in maybe five years' time, it will leave the solar bubble and will actually so go out. beyond the influence of the Sun. Yeah, and will actually go out into interstellar space, which is incredible. It's first man-made mission to go that far. I know, we are a little bit behind sci-fi that seem to think by 2001 <laughs> we'd be off all over the place. Well, 2000, I'm still expecting my hoverboard in five years' time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 2015, get your orders in now. 
So that brings us to your feedback. We did have some responses. Obviously, it's been 20 years since our last episode. You'd hope the post bag would be quite full, but in fact, we had no physical post. Maybe it's all gone (laughs) to the observatory and we just haven't picked it up. Uh, That's a good point. Yeah, maybe that's what happened. But we did get contact by several other means. We'll start with the iTunes reviews. We had um, a review from Bitex Dre, who said that they listen to the Jodcast every night, otherwise they can't sleep. Um, hopefully the Jodcast doesn't send everybody to sleep in that same way. Also, thanks to GTNAKD, who says the April 1st, 2010 issue of the show was pure and deniable genius. They should all win Oscars or Emmys or Nobels. Brilliant. I'm not quite sure you get a Nobel Prize for entertainment, but... No, not for an astronomy podcast. Also, thanks to House Sparrow, Francis Day and John Manifold for their reviews on iTunes. Keep them coming. And over on Facebook, we've actually had quite a bit of feedback this time. Obviously, we need to do an April Fool every episode, although obviously it wouldn't be an April Fool. Randall Affleck really enjoyed listening to the 99th Jogcast. He said that we didn't do a bad job at predicting the future, except for The Simpsons. And obviously, that was a deliberate mistake. We thought we had to put one of them in there. Yeah, you, your trip to the VLA was contrived to mention The Simpsons. Yeah, but that... that ob- because it wasn't yet aired in the UK. As but that observation, those observations did actually happen. My supervisor was doing VLA observations at the time, so I thought I could I could have gone there. Um, also, thanks to Nick Everts and Paul Harper for your messages on Facebook. And by email, we had an email from Randy Green, who's saying that now every time they hear science say that this is only a theory, 1990 makes me chuckle again. And it's always nice to to hear about the history. We hope that you've you've learnt something. I think, in particular, what Tim said about not being able to find extrasolar planets for years—you you just can't predict some things. And obviously, with Hubble going wrong, let's just hope that that doesn't happen again. We were deliberately, yeah, deliberately bigging it up, weren't we? The how wonderful the mirrors would be just <laughs> after the launch. And over on Twitter, um, James Polly thinks that the April 1990 edition was the most hilarious thing he's heard in years, and he loves us, which is always nice to hear. Also, thanks to Physics Chris, who's been wondering whether Meg and I have been borrowing the TARDIS again. I'm not quite sure why no one else got to borrow the TARDIS. It's just me and Meg, <laughs> Megan. Um, and also, thanks to Reese Pie for your comment. And remember, if you want to send us any feedback about the shows, you can get in touch with us via the website at www.jodcast.net. On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. We're on Facebook at jodcast.net slash Facebook. And on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. And once again, guys, please fill out the listener survey. It's really important to us that we can report back to STFC about what you think about the jodcast. And we just like to know where you are and what you're thinking. Yes, yeah, so please go to the website and fill that in. And remember, you've got the chance to win an amazing book. If I give mm. it up. <laughs> <laughs> we'll prize it from Jen's hand. So that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks go to Professor Mike Disney, Professor Richard Davis and Dr. Richard Batty for participating in our slightly crazy April Fool edition of the Jodcast and this follow-up show as well. I think special thanks have to go to Richard Davis. He was extremely confused after doing his interview. I found him wandering the corridors going, what year is it? And he started regressing back into the <laughs> 80s as well. And the editors for this show were Mark Perver and Stuart. So until next time, Jod on. Bye.